Chapter One of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter One The Story of One Hundred Years. It was the twenty third of June, eighteen ninety eight. The day in Cairo had been unusually hot and oppressive, but as the sun went down, a cool wind from the north came blowing softly over the city. I was then living in a little corner of the old town still wholly untouched by the ruthless hand of the reform that, in every other part, was busy marring with modern improvements the old-time charm of the city of the caliphs. As midnight approached, I went up on the roof to enjoy the cool freshness and quiet of the night, and the stillness was almost unbroken. Now and then, in the narrow lanes below, the watchmen, who in their drab-coloured coats and with long staffs and lanterns in their hands, made one think of old London and the days of Dogbury, called to one another, or challenged some belated passer-by, and at times a murmuring echo told of the restless traffic and turbulent life yet stirring in the carriage-crowded streets of the European quarters of the town. But otherwise the silence was undisturbed. As I stood there, leaning on the parapet of the roof, my thoughts wandered back to the night, just one hundred years before, the 23rd of June, 1798, when possibly some wakeful citizen had stood, perhaps on the very spot on which I was then standing, and gazed upon the very scene, the same limited range of housetops and sidewalls that was around me. That distant night is one of which the historians of the country make no mention, and yet it is one of most worthy of note, as having been at once one of the most peaceful and one of the most memorable Cairo has ever known peaceful, for, when not lured from his slumbers by one of the night-quenching festivals he so dearly loves, the Cairene is an early and sound sleeper, and being then, as now, blessed with an easy-going conscious, an unbounded faith in the beneficence of destiny, we may be certain that on that night he slept the sleep of the just man who is weary. Nor was that night less memorable than peaceful, for little as he could foresee it, it was the last for over a century of time on which the Cairene was to sleep so free from care or thought of the morrow. For while the city slumbered, away in the villages on the banks of the Nile, sleepers were being unwontedly awakened and dismayed by the sounds of horsemen hurrying through the night with the rushing haste of men who are bearers of tidings of life and death. Onward, onward they came, these messengers of the night, weary with their long forced ride from Alexandria, the city of the sea, which they had left the day before onward, onward, as rapidly as they could press forward the steeds, that, as one after another failed, were replaced by others seized from the nearest stables for the service of the state. Onward and onward, on their trying ride, spreading as they went the news they bore, news that murdered the sleep of those who heard it, and flung a pall of panic fear over the land. They were still on the road when the Kyrenes, rising, as all good Mohammedans should, with the first dawn of day, proceeded to the duties of the morning with the leisurely diligence that is one of their characteristics. But long before midday the messengers had discharged their task, and the fateful news they had brought was being discussed throughout the town. It was news that, to the Cairene, was fraught with most direful possibilities, for it was news that a fleet of English ships of war had arrived at Alexandria, and that the governor of the town, feeling utterly incapable with the scanty resources at his disposal of offering an effective resistance to a hostile landing had sent to beg for immediate assistance in men and munitions of war many and fervent were the prayers said in the mosques that day and loud and deep 
or the anathemas launched against the foreigner who was at their gates. It is not surprising that it should be so, for, of all evils he could imagine, a foreign invasion was, to the Cairene, as to the people of Egypt generally, one of the most suggestive of personal loss and misery. Exactly one hundred years had passed since that day, and the dying hours of that century of time left the Egyptian, as its opening hours had found him, distrustful of the English, rejecting their friendship, and cursing them as foes. That it should have been thus is one of the problems that perplex those who attempt to know or understand the Egyptian. As I thought of these things, it seemed to me that, living as I then was among the most conservative class of the people, the class that still prides itself on living the life its fathers and grandfathers led, and holds all things foreign to be abominations, and yet meeting from day to day with the modern, half-Europeanized citizens, and being myself almost an Oriental in thought and sympathy, I could read the story of that one hundred years, and comprehend the feelings of the people through all its incidents, better perhaps than any other European, and that by sketching the history of that century as it appears to me, I might help others to understand the people and their history better, and thus aid in promoting the mutual good will that is as essential to the interests of the Egyptian himself as to those of the great army of foreigners who are dwellers in his hospitable land. As told by the writers of today, the history of Egypt extends over nearly seven thousand years, threescore and ten centuries, just one for every year allotted by the psalmist to man as the period of his life. But of all that great stretch of time, the hundred and odd years lying between the fateful 23rd of June in 1798 and the present day, although unfortunately the materials available for a study of it are scant and for the most part unreliable, has more of human interest as a chapter in the history of mankind than all the long ages that preceded it. Yet, if the reader would rightly comprehend the lesson of this period, he must grasp the fact that in a very full and ample sense all history is a part of one nay, is but one and the same story, writ in different characters. How utterly unlike in all externals are the Gospels written in the Latin, Greek, Arabic, Nagri, or Chinese characters and languages. But the essence and the spirit of all these versions are the same. So it is with the histories of men and nations. The stories of England, France, Spain, India, Egypt, how different, and yet in all that is the final essential of true history, the story of man's combat with his surroundings, the same. It is so because, in the last analysis, all men are the same, like the ocean. His sea in no showing the same, his sea and the same neath all showing. Scattered in the deserts of Persia, the traveler comes upon isolated villages wherein men and women are born, grow up, marry, beget families, and die and never once pass beyond the mirage-haunted horizons of their little oasis. With world-encircling ideas and ambitions, the traveller thinks of the mad maelstrom of life in the crowded cities of the West, and wonders that men can be so different and still be men, and yet more so, that between himself and these Persians of the desert, drifting through life in a daily round that never changes, never varies, there should be anything in common. And the wonder is, not that they have the same shape and form as he, that they can cry with Shylock, If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you poison us, do we not die? All that is as nothing, since it lifts the man no higher than the brutes of the field. But in all else, in all that is the essential differentia of man, even in these, these children of the waste, are such as we, moved by the same passions, stirred by the same affections, urged by the same desires, however variously all these may find expression. Further yet afield, 
the miserable mahars and the mangs of the indian deccan who living or dead are held by all the peoples around them as not less vile than the carrion they do not scorn to eat even there among these if you will you may trace as the venerable missionary wilson did deep buried under the man-debasing foulness of their lives the humanity of the man as the dominating all-controlling element severing them by an immeasurable and impassable distance from the noblest of the animals and linking them by an unseverable bond to the noblest of their fellow-men all that may characterize the individuals outside of this is but the accident of his life and being the essential element guiding and swaying him in all things is this fundamental ineradicable humanity it is the fashion nowadays to speak of the brotherhood of man but how few realize how absolutely how completely the phrase expresses the simple truth a truth that nullifies all the arrogantly arrayed arguments and fancy-founded fallacies of haeckel and the whole field of monists and the materialists if then we would understand the egyptian or any other people you must start by recognizing that however wide and apparently unbridgeable may be the gulf that divides us from them whether physical mental or moral it has been caused by the rushing flow of the multitudinous circumstances that have moulded the life and character of each and as mill and buckle have said not to any originating differences in our natures as a boy at school to me history was the dullest of dull tasks but when i came to mix with the peoples of foreign lands and fascinated by the charm of the living kaleidoscope of indian life sought some clue to the myriad-minded moods and manners of its peoples i longed for a history that should tell me how and why these peoples were so different from and yet so like my own but histories as they are written are rarely more than chafing-dish hashes of the funeral baked meats of court chronicles served up with a posset of platitudes and pedantry for sauce from such histories we may gather a great array of useless and for the most part perfectly uncertain and unreliable facts but of the true story of a people scarce anything more than a few doubtful indications for true history is no bald chronicle of events but the history of man's too often blind but always intuitive struggle towards happiness back in those memory-forsaken ages of which even myth and legend now tell us nothing men strove in the same ceaseless never-ending struggle what if the immediate aim of that struggle varied then and now with time and place what if the dweller in the ice-cold lands of the north should be ever seeking the warmth from which the sunburnt inhabitant of the torrid zone would fain escape to neither is the heat or the cold a thing to be desired or shunned save only as either serves to swell the total of his enjoyment of life but just as the nature of the climate in which they dwell modifies their conception of enjoyment so also a host of other circumstances some minute and scarcely traceable in their influence others broad and plainly visible mould the ideas and ideals of men and nations thus and thus only it is that the egyptian and the englishman are so far apart in all that constitutes the individual or national characteristics of each thus it is that the restless activity and energy of the one is abhorrent to the other and that the englishman to-day finds the egyptians as herodotus found them so long ago men distinguished from the rest of mankind by the singularity of their institutions and their manners i would therefore have my readers avoid the error of judging the egyptians merely from comparison with their own standards and without due regard to the study of the causes that have made them what they are if the egyptian be found lacking in qualities upon the possession of which we justly pride ourselves he is not that for reason alone to be condemned or despised he has even as we have faults and imperfections that may be justly censured 
Like Meredith's Captain de Cray, we are all variegated with faults. These but attest to our common humanity, and for the Egyptian it may at least be said that he has that charity that covers a multitude of sins, the charity of heart that far outvalues the charity of the purse. Judged with equity, he compares favorably in many respects with many other men, less backward than the Spaniard, less bigoted than the Portuguese, less fanatical than any other Oriental, not embittered in spirit as the Irish Celts, patient in tribulation, long-suffering, placable, forgiving, hospitable, honest and withal one who, like Ebau ben Edom, loves his fellow man. There is much, very much in the Egyptian that may well serve to gain him the friendship and good will of those who seek to know him as he really is. But with all this there is one difference between the Egyptian and all European peoples that, as it seems to me, forms an almost impassable barrier to the growth of close friendship, or even intimate companionship between the European and the Egyptian. This difference is in their modes of thinking and reasoning, for not until the Ethiopian changes his skin will the Oriental think or reason as a European does. There are hundreds of volumes wherein the Egyptian is portrayed as he has been seen or known by the authors, but like all other Easterns, the Egyptian is, perhaps always will be, something of a mystery to the European. The thoughts and reasonings of the two people are so constantly and so utterly at variance on points and matters that seem to each to admit of little or no controversy, that any attempt to reconcile them must be abandoned as impossible. It was a natural result of this incompatibility that the Egyptian, as commonly described by Europeans, is a very different being to the Egyptian as he really is. It is so all over the East, through all the widely differing races, nationalities, and religions of the Asiatic continent, with perhaps the single exception of the Armenians, who in this respect are as distinctly allied to the races of Europe as the Egyptians are to those of Asia. Tourists wander for an hour or two through the bazaars of Egypt or India, and flatter themselves that they have seen and can describe the people. Young officials tell you glibly that they can read them as a book. The veteran who has grown gray in their service will tell you that the longer he has known them, the less he is able to comprehend them. Orientals generally are capable of a high degree of training and education according to our standards. In India we have men who, in debate and authorship in our language, are entitled to rank with some of our own best men. But mentally, even these are apart from us, and in this respect, as Kipling says, East is East, and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Nor is it we only who cannot understand them, since they stumble so often and err as widely in their efforts to comprehend us, and even, as I think, more grossly and more hopelessly. Nonetheless, it is, I believe, quite possible for a European to at least partly bridge the gulf and become familiar with Eastern thought and sentiment, but to do so he must pay a heavy price, for it is to be done only by one who will give not merely years of time, but years of self-abnegation, or self-suppression, of self-isolation to the task. Abandoning all that he has been, he must seek to become that which he is not, and severing his life from all that has made it his, forgo his tastes, stifle his prejudices, ignore his predilections, suppress his emotions, thwart his inclinations, and laughing when he would weep, weep when he would laugh. And with this slaying of his own individuality, he must in all things strive to identify himself with those alien to him, ever seeking to see, hear, think, and act as they do. And he must do this not for a week, a month, or a year, but for many years. Not in one city, town, or country, but in several. Not merely mixing as best he may with the wealthy and the poor, the illiterate and the learned, 
but learning to be at home in the abodes of the prosperous and the haunts of the miserable become equally so with the merchant in the bazaar and the wandering faker in the desert and through it all he must ever be other than his home life and training have made him ceaselessly on the alert to detect the nature feelings and impulses of others and to hide his own and he must be and do all this day and night in the loneliness of the desert as in the busy haunts of men and in doing this he is treading a road over which there is no return the further he goes the more perfect is his success the more impossible it becomes for him to regain his starting point never again can he be that which he has been before he may quit the east return to the home of his childhood and mix again with his fellows as one of them but he can never recover the place he has left and lost for he who goes down into the east though his heart never ceased to yearn for home and the things of home is daily slowly imperceptibly yet surely being estranged and he goes home to find that he no longer has a home that neither in the east nor in the west is there any rest for him thenceforth and forever he is alone in the world and with his own sympathies enlarged and enriched can hope for no sympathy no fellowship amidst all the teeming millions of the earth friends and kindred may crowd around his board ties of love and affection may be renewed but even with the nearest and dearest the fullness of old-time sympathies can never be revived for though the east is a burn from which the traveller may return it is one from the glamour of which he may never free himself and as in the east his heart forever looked yearningly to the west so from the west it will look forever back with desire to the east to him the whole world is clothed with the horror with which the lonely terrible streets of london so bruised the heart of the irish poet such is the price that he who would know the east must pay for his knowledge a price that few have paid that none would willingly or wittingly pay i speak that which i know for over thirty years have passed away since i first went down into the east and as a mere boy as lady burton disdainfully described me set myself the task i have never abandoned consequently as it is my object in this book to try and show what as he appears to me the egyptian of to-day is and how he has become that which he is the picture i shall draw of him will necessarily be unlike those drawn by others but although i freely admit that it will be my aim throughout to seek to gain for the egyptian more generous consideration than he is commonly accorded my sketch will be as faithful to truth as i can make it should it fail to be interesting the fault will assuredly be with the writer and not with the subject end of chapter one the story of one hundred years recording by graham mcmillan san diego california